Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our special Grand Rounds today. This is uh, in honor of Dr. Banta, uh, and uh, Dr. Mark Lee will introduce the lecture in a second, uh, and our wonderful speaker today who will uh, speak about uh, shoulder pain. And, uh, but bef before, before I pass it on to Mark, uh, I, I think it is important to recognize and think what happened over the last week here in, in, in this great country uh, that I love uh, and that I cherish uh, and that I came into uh, several years ago as an immigrant, uh, a place of freedom, a place of democracy, and uh, our institutions held together, and that's important. Um, I wanted to share a couple of thoughts on that because I think it's important to look this through through the eyes of younger people, certainly younger than me. And I, all I have to do is to look to my daughter. My daughter works in Congress. She works in in, in that building. Uh, and uh, and you know when this was occurring, we were text, texting back and forth. And then uh, she posted something on on her social media, which I think is important to to review and read for for all of us. Uh, which gives me hope and, and, and it, it tells me that that our, our country's strong and that we will make it through. And, and here's what she said, and she posted this, is, I love this institution and I love our country. What we witnessed today was aberrant, but I would like to take a moment to shed some light on the many fair, just, and extraordinary hardworking individuals that walk into this building every day to make our democracy work. If you could see what I see every day, the compassionate and brilliant minds at work fighting on behalf of our freedoms and for a more equitable and just nation, I think it would instill some lost faith in the institution that is the Congress and in our United States of America. While my heart breaks for the lost sense of security within these walls, I can assure you, my friends, today will only strengthen our resolve to continue the fight uh, for a better America. And that was signed by my uh, my daughter, uh, very proud of her. Uh, and, and then I went to look for, for a quote that I think is important. And I always look to Martin Luther King as, as a sense of inspiration for everything that he went through in the fight for our civil rights. And, and, uh, and this is very strong and I urge all of us to do it this way. And the quote from Martin Luther King is, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And, and I think that's important for all of us as we move forward. I think love will, will get us through uh, and believe in this country, believe in this beautiful country, democracy strong, and we will make it through despite some of the difficult times. So with that, I, I do want to pass it on to, uh, to Mark Lee, who will introduce uh, Dr. Crippo, who will speak about uh, a very important topic for all of us. So uh, Mark, if you want to take it on. Thank you very much, Juan. Thank you very much for that perspective. Uh, you know, I, I'm also an immigrant in this country, and uh, you know, I uh, absolutely believe that we'll get through this. Uh, kind of not an issue. All right, so uh, today um, we want to recognize the contributions of uh, John or Jack Banta. Um, a, he is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon who began his medical career at Cornell uh, Medical School and then trained in orthopedic hospital in Los Angeles and then kind of did further training and work in the U.S. Navy. Um, next slide. John is, uh, or Jack, is recognized uh, to us, or kind of known to us as the Director of Pediatric Orthopedics for New England Children's Hospital from 1992 to 1996, and then became the first division head of pediatric orthopedics at Connecticut Children's from 1996 to 2000. So he was really kind of this bridge uh, kind of between what Connecticut Children's was and what it became kind of down the line. So that's what he is known to us kind of for. To the world, he's recognized as an expert in spina bifida as well as spinal deformity. He had greater than 60 publications, chapters, and textbooks. Um, he trained numerous fellows, countless residents, um, and that academic uh, spirit kind of lives on today. And I am kind of very proud to kind of segue uh, to introduce Dr. Allison Cropeau. Uh, Dr. Cropeau joined us in 2019 after uh, kind of working for approximately kind of six, seven years in Virginia in uh, pediatric orthopedics and sports medicine. She began her academic career at Siena College in kind of New York, um, and then went to Georgetown uh, kind of for medical school. Uh, she did residency at Stony Brook, um, and kind of throughout this entire path, she's kind of gained numerous academic accolades. Uh, she went on to Arnold Palmer Children's Hospital for pediatric orthopedic training, um, and then completed her sports medicine training uh, at Boston Children's. Uh, so it is really my pleasure to introduce my partner, uh, kind of our wonderful addition to the sports medicine faculty, Alison Cropeau, as she discusses the pediatric and adolescent shoulder. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for having me today. Thank you, 
uh, Dr. Lee for asking me to uh, do this lecture. So today I'm talking about pediatric and adolescent shoulder. Um, I'm hoping to basically review some very broad topics, um, kind of in office, uh, things to look for, reasons to refer. Um, we know that musculoskeletal pain presents often um, to a primary care providers. Uh, and then the decision from there as to what to do um, sort of generally falls first in your hands and then uh, you know, we're certainly here for help. Today, overview, I will go over some basic anatomy um, and some basic physical exam points, and then we'll review some common conditions. These can include trauma, such as fractures, sprains, and dislocations, uh, some very straightforward bone lesions, traumatic instability of the shoulder, overuse injuries, and then atraumatic instability. So in starting with uh, shoulder anatomy, and I apologize, I can't point at anything, so <laughs> you're going to have to bear with me. <laughs> um, there are three bones that make up the shoulder girdle, so the clavicle uh, or collarbone, uh, the scapula or shoulder blade, and then, oh, thank you, <laughs> the, the uh, scapula or shoulder blade, and then the humerus. Um, the scapula in particular is a very complicated bone, um, it has multiple parts to it, uh, and so it's, it's very interesting uh, to, to look at anatomically. The joints of the shoulder girdle that we'll talk about are, of course, the sternoclavicular joint, which is the joint between the clavicle and the sternum, so medially. Um, the acromioclavicular joint, uh, which is further out lateral between the collarbone and the acromion, which is part of the scapula. And then the glenohumeral joint is the shoulder joint that we think of, um, the joint between the glenoid and the humerus. Uh, and um, the scapula thoracic joint, um, which is not a true joint, but essentially is the scapular shoulder blade moving over the rib cage. It does contribute a significant amount to our overall shoulder motion and is a common place where we can um, have pain and problems. So the glenohumeral joint or the shoulder joint itself is the articulation with the humerus and the glenoid, which is part of the scapula. Um, the superiorly to the shoulder is the acromion, again, which is part of the scapula. From a muscle standpoint, we have our pectoralis major, um, which is a large uh, pectoral muscle in the front of the body, which works to internally rotate and adduct or bring in the arm. We have our deltoid muscle, which if anyone got their vaccine like I did, you know where that is now. Um, that abducts our arm. And then the serratus anterior, which is actually an anterior muscle that attaches to the shoulder blade and holds that shoulder blade down. Um, so that can prevent uh, winging of the scapula. Posteriorly, there are more superficial muscles and then more deep. Um, again, deltoid uh, covers sort of front, lateral, and posteriorly. The trapezius, again, I think we all know, that's where all of our stress sits, um, that elevates and rotates your scapula. The rhomboids are the muscles that pull in the shoulder blade, um, and then the latissimus dorsi is further down, um, and that acts to adduct and internally rotate the arm. And then we have the rotator cuff. So the rotator cuff is a dynamic stabilizer of the shoulder. Um, there are four muscles which all originate on the scapula. Um, there's a subscapularis, which actually lives underneath our shoulder blade um, and comes around the front of the shoulder. Um, that attaches to the lesser tuberosity and lives anterior to the shoulder. Uh, and then the supraspinatus uh, is above the spine of the scapula. So again, we have this complicated shape. Um, there's a little spine running across the back of the scapula and above that is the supraspinatus Below that is the infraspinatus, um, and then the teres minor. The good news is that rotator cuff issues in kids are relatively rare, um, but certainly strengthening um, and getting the rotator cuff in good shape um, is important for a lot of uh, the problems that we deal with in adolescence. So shoulder stability is limited. Um, the shoulder is one of the most unstable joints in our body, and that's for a reason. It's to maximize motion of our hand. Um, so unlike where we need to put our foot every day, our hands need to be used um, and mobilized, and therefore we compromise uh, the stability of the shoulder because of that. 
So there are static restraints, which are basically restraints that are in place that don't move. Um, so the glenoid, again, the cup of the shoulder, the labrum is a rim of cartilage around it. And then there are joint capsules and ligaments that control the, or that are in place to stabilize the shoulder joint. But if you compare the shoulder to the hip, there's not a lot of bony stability. And also if you look at the shape of the glenoid, it's longer certainly from top to bottom than it is from front to back. Um, and unfortunately, most of our instability is anterior or off to the front. Um, the dynamic restraints of the shoulder, things that we can uh, work on and strengthen are the rotator cuff muscles and the biceps tendon. So when a patient presents with shoulder pain, we sort of run through our typical set of history questions um, about the pain itself. So how set of symptoms, was this an acute injury or an acute problem that started, or has this been insidious or sort of slow onset of pain? Was there a trauma or injury? Where is the pain? Um, where, what is the timing of the pain? So obviously we're all trained to sort of ask about nighttime pain, pain that wakes you up from sleep. Those are things that um, obvious red flags. Uh, otherwise, you know, is it during an activity? Is it after an activity? Um, specifically, are there inciting events or activities that cause the pain? Um, so in our athletes, if they're throwing athletes or they're using their arm in an overhead motion, such as volleyball or tennis, um, if they're a swimmer, and are there relieving factors, things that make the pain better? Um, on physical exam, we can do inspection. So part of the shoulder exam um, really is sort of looking at uh, the the anterior part of the shoulder as well as posterior. So you can look for visible swelling, bony prominence or masses. In general, this is pretty uncommon that you would see anything exciting on a shoulder exam, um, but certainly in the setting of trauma, uh, you certainly can. We wanna look at symmetry. And then looking from behind, um, most of the time, I'm generally kind of screening for a, just a quick screen for scoliosis to have the patient sort of bend forward and look at the way their uh, thoracic spine looks. Does it look asymmetric, prominent on one side? Um, a lot of times scoliosis can actually present with a parent noting some abnormality um, or some prominence of the shoulder blade. Um, additionally, you wanna look at their shoulder blade and their motion. So you can have the patient bring their arms up and down and see what that shoulder blade looks like or bring it forward. Um, this is an image of winging of the scapular. So um, with that serratus or the yeah, serratus anterior not working properly um, and some of the other periscapular muscles, the medial border of the shoulder can sort, or the shoulder blade um, can become prominent. This will also happen in the setting of an injury. So if the shoulder is bothering them, the, the habit is to protract or bring that shoulder forward. Um, and so these are all clues that can help tell us what's going on. As far as palpation, um, generally just press over the bones and the joints, so the clavicle, um, and then at the end of the distal end of the clavicle is the AC joint. That's your, again, a chromioclavicular joint. Um, on the anterior shoulder, you can palpate the biceps tendon um, and the pectoralis insertion, which inserts on the anterior part of the shoulder or the humerus. The lateral shoulder um, will palpate, palpate the deltoid. Um, and again, in some patients, uh, as we'll talk about later with pain at their growth plate, uh, you can have pain out laterally. Um, some people will present with pain over the posterior shoulder. Um, and then around the shoulder blade, a lot of patients will present with shoulder pain, but come in more with pain in their trapezius or in their shoulder blade muscles. So physical exam, um, when we're talking about range of motion, we have forward flexion, um, which is bringing the arm up in front of the body, uh, and abduction, which is bringing the arm up uh, around the side, so in this direction and adduction is bringing it back down. Uh, and then we look at external and internal rotation. Um, this can be done in a low position or uh, up high to look at how much the shoulder rotates. Strength testing, pretty similarly. Um, again, just basics, um, external rotation, push out, internal rotation, have them push in, abduction, lift those arms up. Um, one of the things, uh, depending on 
who's in your office and what they're complaining of is to do a quick assessment of a Baton score, which is to assess for laxity. Um, a lot of the problems that will pop up in adolescent uh, patients are some, some laxity or some looseness of the shoulders. Um, so getting a, a basic assessment of how uh, lax they are. Um, not often will I do the entire Baton score, but just um, some quick tests to ask them to put their arms straight and see if they hyperextend. Um, I ask them if they're in my club and if they can touch their thumb to their forearm, um, just to, to get a basic assessment of where that patient is. Some of our special moves. So the shoulder, I think, out of all the joints has the most named tests. Um, they drive me crazy. Everybody in Orthopedics has their own named test in the shoulder, and so it becomes a sort of who's who when you're going through your shoulder exam sometimes. Um, in general, I prefer to stick with normal names for things um, and try to get a good assessment. You certainly don't have to, um, in the office, run through 55 tests on the shoulder. Um, and again, common things are common in kids. There are a lot of these tests and a lot of things they're looking for that are very much restricted to adult pathology. Um, so in kids, the major problems that we're going to see are instability um, and a few other things. So looking for instability, we have the apprehension test, which is basically putting the arm into an abducted and externally rotated position. Um, you can do this either standing um, or laying down. <clears throat> if you do it laying down, you can then, um, if the patient is uncomfortable getting into that position or they feel normally apprehension is a sort of, I ask, does it make you nervous? Does it bother you when I do this? Um, and then if you lay them down and put pressure, pushing the humerus back so that it can't come forward uh, and do the same maneuver, if they feel better when you do that, um, then generally that does suggest some anterior instability. Sulcus sign. So if I didn't have my coat on, I could show you that, but basically, um, some of the people who are more lax are able to pull their shoulder joint out the bottom. Um, you have to get somebody really relaxed in order to pull on their shoulder and let them pull, pull them out the bottom, but you can see um, the humerus sort of sublux down and a little gap form between the acromion and the humerus. Uh, and then the last one is the jerk test. We're looking for posterior instability. So uh, keep in mind that most of the patients with multidirectional instability or some Again, they'll present a sort of looseness or popping of the shoulder. Um, a lot of them have issues with posterior subluxation, um, particularly in the young adolescent female. So having them put their arm forward and slowly move into abduction, um, sometimes you'll actually feel a palpable click or a pop or a clunk. Um, but pushing the shoulder backwards can actually apply pressure to see if that bothers them. Most people will then jerk their arm forward to um, stop the posterior subluxation, hence the jerk test. So moving into some common conditions, um, some, there are some very straightforward bone lesions that like the proximal humerus, um, and osteochondroma is one of them. So this is the most common benign bony tumor of childhood that we see. Um, it can present as a painless mass or prominence. Rarely do they present with pain, um, but certainly it can, uh, in a small or a young patient who's thin, you can um, sometimes start to see these look quite prominent. Um, they do like to live mostly around the knee, the distal um, femur and the proximal tibia are their favorite place, but um, proximal humerus is about third on that list. Um, you can also have these develop in the scapula. Um, we recommend excision only if they're symptomatic. Um, and the risk of malignant conversion from a single or solitary osteochondroma is exceedingly low, um, less than 1%. So um, just something to look out for, generally diagnosed with uh, an x-ray. Unicameral bone cysts. Um, the proximal humerus is the most common location for this. Again, this is a benign um, tumor of childhood. Uh, it does tend to live in the metaphysis, or as the child grows, it can grow down into the diaphysis of the bone. Um, they may shrink and resolve with age. Um, I think I was always taught that they go away by adulthood, but it seems that that actually may not be true. We just don't follow them after they become adults. Um, but these um, often present as pathologic fractures. So 50% of the time, the presenting symptom will be a pathologic fracture. 
Um, so sometimes kids are playing and they fall and they break. Other times it's something simple. I was throwing a ball and all of a sudden my, my arm broke. Um, and so they'll present to an emergency room uh, with that issue. Um, in general, we let these fractures heal and then sort of have a conversation with the family regarding the risk of recurrence. So obviously we don't wanna get into a multiple fracture situation in these. Um, so once they're healed, there are sort of minimally invasive things that we can do to help the cyst go away um, by injecting it with either steroids or calcium paste. Uh, sometimes you have to be a little more aggressive and actually scrape out the cyst wall and then fill it in. Um, but again, these are benign. Um, they just cause issues because they can cause fractures. Um, and sometimes we, we get into a sort of watch and wait situation. Um, and so these are certain thing, certainly things that are appropriate to refer um, over to orthopedics. In the trauma department, we have clavicle fracture, we have proximal humerus fractures, um, our AC joint sprain, sternoclavicular joint dislocation, and then our shoulder joint or shoulder dislocation. So clavicle fractures, I'm sure um, a lot of our uh, colleagues in general pediatrics are, are familiar with these. Um, they can occur first as a birth injury. Um, it occurs during the delivery of the shoulders. Um, it, it actually is protective. So when I'm counseling a family, um, you know, oftentimes people are very upset about the clavicle fracture, but honestly, um, you would pick this any day over a brachial plexus injury. These heal so rapidly. Um, newborns can heal a fracture in a week. Um, I think the, the biggest thing to counsel them about is that the child will develop a large bump because they develop such robust uh, healing and callus that uh, around that two to three week mark, if even in the younger child, the, the five to 10 year olds, um, I, I always warn them because otherwise you get that phone call around the three week mark of a panicked parent saying something's happening, there's a big bump um, and they're very visible in these little kids. So treatment as far as uh, babies for uh, clavicle fractures, there's really minimal need for mobilization. Um, sometimes people get a little overzealous trying to immobilize these um, and those can cause complications. So I would advise sort of, you know, minimal is better. Um, the one thing to avoid is to wrap the arm directly to the chest without anything underneath. Um, I've seen uh, incredible skin complications from that. Um, and so some of the, the, everybody has their own techniques, but one of them is to do a double onesie, to put a onesie on the baby, put their arm through the sleeve, and then put another onesie on over it, and you can leave that arm inside. Um, but honestly, babies will self-protect. They, they generally won't use their arm until they're feeling better, and again, that occurs uh, within a couple days to a week, they'll start using the arm. In that case, you want to let them use it. You don't want to restrict motion. Moving into the pediatric and adolescent patient, this makes up 15% of all the upper extremity injuries that we see. Um, it's generally a fall on an outstretched hand or a direct blow to the lateral shoulder. Um, patients will present with pain over the clavicle um, and sometimes pain with shoulder motion. These can be non-displaced, they can be fairly displaced. Um, in general, treatment is generally non-operative. Um, essentially, all patients 12 and under um, are, are treated non-operatively, um, no matter how bad it looks. And sometimes that takes a lot of counseling. Um, you know, we think of these as very straightforward fractures, but, um, but there, there can be a lot of counseling and, and advising the family and sort of asking them to trust us when we're telling them that their child is going to be fine, no matter how crazy their x-ray looks. Um, most patients 13 and above also can be treated non-operatively. Um, in general, treatment is a sling for four weeks. The length of time out of contact sports really depends on the displacement and healing and age of the patient. Um, and in general, physical therapy isn't needed, but um, a lot of times in the adolescent athlete, um, we will sometimes do that. So this is a uh, teenager with a mid-shaft clavicle fracture. Um, again, this, is a, this can be a long office visit, <laughs> um, asking the family to, to trust me that this is gonna be okay. Um, so then we follow it as it heals, and the body is really an incredible thing. Um, and kids in general, they make our job very easy. Um, so this is about a month after the initial injury, and then two months after the initial injury. So you can see the fracture filling in nicely. 
Um, by the third picture, he's basically radiographically healed. Um, there's obviously some prominence from the bump, and that will fade over time. You can see um, the evolution from the top to the bottom of the sort of sharpness of the end of the bone. So when, it, when they first break, um, the end of the fracture fragment can be quite sharp. Um, and then over time, it sort of uh, dulls itself out. And um, most of the time at this point, we stop following them, but um, certainly you can follow these further out and it will take months, but um, over time, uh, this will remodel nicely. Um, there are operative indications for clavicle fractures, um, obviously an open clavicle fracture, which in eight years of practice, I've never seen, um, severe skin tenting or necrosis, that's a tough call. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we get consults for skin tenting and obviously there's not a whole lot between the clavicle and the skin. Um, so most of these will tent, but it has to be significant to the point where the skin is white and appears like it's going to necrose um, to really push for that indication. Vascular injury, luckily, given the position of the clavicle and everything that's around it, um, vascular injury is incredibly rare. So we're lucky in that standpoint. Um, and then there are some I would say controversial indications in adolescence. So um, <clears throat> this uh, clavicle fracture uh, fixation became extremely popular in the adult world after um, a Canadian group published a study saying that uh, there seems to be uh, some uh, strength deficits if you leave a collarbone uh, more than two centimeters shortened. Um, and so that literature basically came out in the adult world and then got pushed down to the adolescent world. Um, and so the, uh, the real indications, um, you know, for this, I think, are, again, the above ones. Um, the more controversial ones are this idea of shortening or with a segmental fracture. Um, in general, uh, discussing operative treatment of a clavicle fracture, again, is a long conversation with the family. Um, there are certainly pluses and minuses. They technically can get back to sports faster, um, although that plate is not foolproof. It can break. You can break around the plate. Um, so certainly it looks nice. It makes the x-ray look pretty. Um, honestly, it's a fun case. We all like doing them. Um, you do trade a bump for a scar, so you trade that prominence for um, a, a nice incision along the collarbone. Um, you know, I, I warn my patients about that um, because especially for our female patients, um, it, it can be quite visible if you're wearing tank tops, strapless dresses, things like that. Um, the hardware can be problematic. So again, there's not a lot of coverage. Um, and the biggest complication, the bigger complications with uh, clavicle surgery um, can be wound complications. You can have infection. Um, most people will get an area of numbness adjacent to the incision. Um, all of which, you know, are not terrible, but uh, a lot of people also hate that plate once it's in there. So once the bone is healed, um, there is a, a fair subset of people that require a second surgery to remove the plate. Um, and so again, you know, it, it can be done. Um, there can be reasonable indications to fix this. Um, this is one of my patients that had this segmental type fracture. Um, certainly he, you know, got back to things faster. Um, I think in the adult world, it makes sense if you have to get back to work, if you have to support your family, um, you know, you can sort of argue that it makes sense to, to fix this and get people back faster. Um, for kids, you know, four weeks in a sling is not the end of the world. Um, and so the, um, I, I think we will see more to come. Um, the functional outcomes essentially are equal between uh, operative and non-operative treatments. Um, the non-union risk, which was often cited as a reason to fix these, especially the very displaced ones that sort of look crazy. Um, at the end of the day, the non-union risk has been shown to be less than 1% for adolescents. So it's really a non-issue. Um, and then there are, uh, there is a multi-center prospective trial going on right now, the FACTS study, um, which has not been published yet, but I think um, will be an important contribution to the literature about this. So um, the other you know, complicating factor about this, sometimes these patients, um, is depending on which emergency room they present to, they'll be told in the ER that they need surgery. Um, and again, uh, kids are not adults. Adolescents are, are, even though they're close to it, they're still not adults as far as um, healing goes and their uh, ability to uh, be treated non-operatively. So 
um, those are all things to keep in mind. Um, proximal humerus fractures, um, these are fairly common, about 5% of pediatric fractures. Um, generally, this is blunt trauma or indirect trauma, pain and tenderness over the proximal humerus. Um, it's rare to see deformity or ecchymosis. Most of the time, these are, are pretty subtle. Um, you'll see them, obviously, on, on x-rays. And then most of the time, they are metaphyseal, such as the one in the picture, um, which is, it can be sort of a little buccal fracture or even a complete transverse fracture or they can be uh, physeal injuries from the proximal humeral physis um, in the older patient. Um, again, a lot of these can often be pathologic because of those unicameral bone cysts that we'll see. Um, these are easy. I always tell the family, if you had to pick a fracture, this is the great one. Um, these heal incredibly quickly. Um, treatment is almost always non-operatively, non-operative, sorry. Um, they need a sling usually for a couple of weeks, depending on how old they are. That may be two to three weeks before the child is it, it's becoming a battle to put them in the sling. Um, the remodeling potential of the proximal humerus is absolutely amazing. Um, I wish I'd taken the time to find some pictures of these, but there's some pretty impressive uh, case reports out there um, of just leaving the humerus looking completely ridiculous. Um, and then over time, it just, like a starfish, just puts itself back together. Um, remember that 80% of the growth um, of the arm is from the proximal humerus. And so the remodeling potential, the ability to correct things is amazing. Um, the one caveat to that is the older uh, adolescent who's about to hit skeletal maturity. Um, in those patients, these proximal humeral physeal fractures are fairly common. Um, and if they're closer to skeletal maturity, then they have less potential to remodel these. Um, and so those uh, are the, the probably rare time that we will consider fixation um, of these proximal humerus fractures in order to prevent a significant deformity, which would then limit um, range of motion. The AC joint. Um, so again, this is the joint between the collarbone and the acromion or the top of the shoulder um, in uh, layman's terms, this is a shoulder separation. Um, so the, this is a sprain of the ligaments between uh, clavicle and neochromian. These are most common in male athletes, um, often from a direct blow or a fall to the lateral shoulder. It can present with pain and tenderness over the AC joint. So again, if you have a patient in the office with an acute injury, um, this is one of the places to push to see if they hurt. Uh, it's uncommon but it can happen that there will be some displacement of uh, the AC joint so that if there are enough ligaments torn, and this is our grading system up top, um, a grade one is just a sort of a sprain or minimal tear of the ligaments between the two bones. Um, a grade two is a more complete tear of the uh, acromial clavicular ligaments. And then the grade three, um, also the CC ligaments or corcoclavicular ligaments get involved, and that really allows that collarbone to pop up. Um, these are actually fairly uncommon before age 16, so much more common in the adult world. Um, in general, if they're, if they're generally lower grade sprains, then we do sling immobilization and sometimes some physical therapy. Um, there are cases when if there is a significant displacement or grade three, the grading system does go further up to grade four and grade five, um, depending on anterior and posterior instability. Um, those, those can be an indication for surgery. The sternoclavicular joint um, also can move or dislocate. Um, this is an interesting one because they often uh, can actually be a physeal fracture. So the medial clavicle um, physis is actually the last uh, physis in the body to close. And so a lot of these injuries are, can actually be physeal fractures. Um, these injuries are most common in the adult male. Um, again, direct blow or fall to the lateral shoulder. Um, where, it, where the chain breaks just depends on your luck that day. Um, most commonly, we can see anterior dislocations of the sternoclavicular joint. Um, but the ones that we talk about the most are the posterior sternoclavicular joint, probably one of the most sort of pulse-raising injuries in uh, orthopedics when you look at the CT scan. <laughs> um, so about a third of these are posterior. Most of them are actually missed initially because clinically it can be very difficult to even see anything going on. Patient presents with pain. Um, X-rays look pretty normal. Uh, and so you have to have sort of a high index of suspicion to look for this. 
Um, and again, many of these are actually physeal fractures. Um, presentation will be tenderness over the medial clavicle. Sometimes there can be swelling um, in that area. And so that can also make this sort of anterior posterior dislocation um, confusing because the area will swell. Um, and then if it goes posteriorly, there's a lot of important stuff back there. Um, and so patients can present with difficulty breathing or swallowing. Um, the anterior sternoclavicular joint dislocation, um, you can do an acute closed reduction. Um, sometimes these do become a more chronic issue, but I think most people uh, often manage these non-operatively. It can become more of a cosmetic issue uh, more than anything else. Uh, the posterior sternoclavicular dislocation or fracture um, can be seen in this CAT scan at the bottom. So if you look at the left shoulder, um, you can see that the medial clavicle sitting posterior to the sternum. You can also see a small fleck of bone left where it used to live, um, suggesting that this is probably a physeal injury. But you can see the, uh, these clavicles sitting right on top of all the great vessels. Um, <clears throat> and again, these are often missed in the emergency room. Um, they're, they're easiest to see on, on CT scan. The x-rays, again, are wildly unimpressive. Um, and then treatment for this, um, depending on the, how soon you see them um, and a lot of other factors, um, sometimes you can get these with a closed reduction in the operating room, um, but other times we have to do open reduction. Um, in general, we tend to have uh, CT surgery on standby, just again, given the location of the fracture. Um, and then we avoid hardware because there are some stunning case reports of people trying to put metal here and it migrating into very scary, bad places. So um, we tend to fix these with these nice, heavy, non-absorbable sutures. Traumatic anterior shoulder instability. So this is the shoulder dislocation. This is a common injury among adolescent athletes. Um, peak age is around 16 and a half. So the bottom figure shows uh, incidence of shoulder dislocation by age. Um, so there's a sort of sudden spike once we get right into those early to mid-teen years, and then things decrease um, as we go. It's very rare to get a, a shoulder dislocation under the age of 10. Most of these occur with contact and collision sports, football being the most common. So presentation, um, obviously the patient will present with pain, limited range of motion, deformity of the shoulder. Um, on imaging, you can get plane images which show, or plane radiographs which show um, the shoulder in a dislocated position. Uh, they, it, it's important to assess if this is an anterior posterior dislocation. Classically, posterior shoulder dislocations um, occur uh, in the setting of a seizure or electrocution, um, according to the textbooks. Uh, and then the post-reduction um, views are important to get what's called an axillary view. So we, we try to get this um, bottom right-hand picture, uh, which is a view sort of shot straight up the uh, axilla or the armpit, looking at that shoulder to make sure that the um, glenohumeral joint is reduced uh, in relative to, uh, or that the humerus is reduced relative to the glenoid. Um, following a reduction, initial treatment is generally a sling. We know that in the setting of a shoulder dislocation, there can be multiple injuries. So we can see a labral tear, um, which again is a tear of the cartilage that sits around the rim of the glenoid uh, and helps with shoulder stability. You can get a glenoid fracture, um, which is seen with the arrows, where actually a piece of the, um, the glenoid can actually break off. Um, and then you can get a Hillsack's lesion, um, which happens in 90% of the cases, which is basically a dent in the humerus where it, it hit the front of the glenoid. So treatment. Um, this is a hot topic right now. Um, I think the things have shifted significantly even in my time in practice. Um, we know that the recurrence rate specifically in the adolescent age group can be reported up to 92%. So once you have a shoulder dislocation, the risk of if you're a teenager, um, particularly if you're a male, particularly if you're a contact athlete, um, your risk of dislocation skyrockets immensely. Uh, and so the risk factors, um, there are a, lo 
a lot of them, but um, in general, age greater than 14, male, um, if there's bone loss at the time of injury, and then uh, contact athletes. If there's glenoid bone loss, which is something we talk about a lot um, because it really dictates treatment for us, um, meaning if there are if you lose bone off of the front of that glenoid, again, it's it's small enough to begin with. Um, any little bit uh, of, of bone loss or fracture can increase the uh, rate of dislocation. And unfortunately, as that bone loss increases, so does the um, sort of size or depth of our surgery. Um, so there's been a movement really to, um, to look hard and have a good conversation um, with these first-time dislocators. Um, so again, you know, I, I think thinking back to when I first started in practice eight years ago, um, most first-time dislocators, I would put them in a sling, I would rehab them, say, we'll see how it goes. Um, I think uh, given the, the studies that have come out, um, I think a lot of us have gotten a lot more aggressive. Um, and so really this comes down to having a discussion with the family. Um, <clears throat> studies have shown that uh, you can increase success so the, the less damage there is. So if this is just a straightforward labral tear, um, the, the less damage there is, the easier the surgery is and the less invasive it is. So, so something simple like um, a labral tear, uh, which is shown uh, in the top arthroscopic picture, um, you can see the separation. So you're looking at the bottom part is the glenoid. Um, the little red line there is the um, tear. And then the, the white tissue in front of that is the labrum. Uh, and then the, the moon-shaped thing in the top is the humerus. So these are, are fairly straightforward to treat arthroscopically. It's nice and minimally invasive. Um, we put in anchors into the bone and then repair the um, tissue down, which you can see in the bottom picture. Uh, <clears throat> there are, again, multiple studies showing that this will decrease your um, rate of dislocation and therefore hopefully the rate of um, further injury to the shoulder. And then it may allow us to avoid getting into the situation where there is glenoid bone loss and then we're looking at larger open and um, essentially non-anatomic surgeries. So our baseline surgical treatments, um, and again, these, this is a, a topic of discussion um, that could go on forever, uh, and, which is you know, deciding between an arthroscopic bank heart repair or a labral repair, um, an open bank heart repair, meaning we do an open procedure where we do essentially the same thing. Um, so the, the labral tissue back down and tighten up the joint capsule. Um, and then, you know, if, there, if we do get into the setting of, of glenoid bone loss, again, sort of loss of, or sort of chipping away of that oval, um, then we have to look at larger procedures because we know that the failure rate of just doing something simple is, is high. Um, and then you're getting into a revision situation. So the ladder shea is sort of our mainstay of treatment right now. That's the um, procedure shown over uh, on the right-hand side of the screen. This is basically taking the coracoid, so it's recycling at its finest. Um, we take the coracoid, we cut it off. The coracoid's a little finger thing pointing forward off of the scapula. Um, and then we turn it and stick it onto the glenoid to create a bumper or a bony bumper to prevent that shoulder from dislocating. Um, overuse injuries, I'm just checking my time here. Uh, so these are probably the more common things that we'll see. Um, so the, the big one is, is our throwing athletes, overhead throwing athletes. So this can be baseball pitchers, um, but it can also be baseball and softball players, especially catchers, people who just do high volume throwing, um, and even tennis players. So in the younger athletes, we talk a lot about little league shoulder, um, and in the more skeletally mature patient, they can start to get some of the, the damage that we can see, um, again, in uh, throwing overuse injuries, such as um, impingement in uh, internal impingement and slap tears. Um, SLAP stands for superior labrum anterior to posterior. Again, not super common in, um, in our teens, but uh, they do start to pop up. So basically, if you have a shoulder, uh, shoulder pain in the throwing athlete, um, we start to ask, are you having pain with throwing? How long has the pain been going on for? Um, a lot of these patients will also have elbow pain. And then you want to start to get into the nitty-gritty questions. Um, how many teams are you playing on? How many games a week are you playing? How many pitches are you throwing? Um, do you play baseball all year round? Um, other things to ask to sort of assess if there's something real going on is have you had a loss of velocity of your throws or pitches? Um, Little League shoulder specifically um, describes a physial stress injury at the proximal humerus. Um, we see it in throwing in overhead athletes. 
Generally, they're skeletally immature. Obviously, it's a physeal injury, so age 9 to 15. The cause is the successive rotational torque going through the proximal humerus during the throw. So um, during the phases of throwing, the, the shoulder rotates significantly. Um, and that can create some microfractures and stress through the physis. Um, these tend to come on as an insidious onset of pain in the dominant shoulder, worse during and after throwing. Um, most of these kids, this is a grown-up, obviously not a kid with little league shoulder, but um, they will have some tenderness to palpation over the proximal humerus. And range of motion in general, if you just sort of ask them to move their shoulder around, range of motion and strength can be um, fairly normal unless they're really hurting. Um, the thing that we look for is what's called the glenohumeral rotational, glenohumeral internal rotational deficit. Um, so this, we abbreviate it to GERD. We have our own GERD. Um, and this is often seen on the dominant arm. So um, in the picture shown is uh, testing for internal rotation. So on the left-hand side, you can see the amount of internal rotation um, that this person has compared to their dominant arm. So that limited internal rotation is often um, seen. And so it's something that you can assess for quickly in the office. Um, <clears throat> so they will uh, have extra external rotation, lose internal rotation. And it's that um, that goes into a more complicated talk about um, why that causes so much issue with the shoulder, but um, that is one of the main problems. Again, 13% um, of these uh, kids will also have elbow pain with throwing, um, and then you may find scapular protraction or winging. Risk factors, bleh, risk factors for um, little league shoulder is year-round play and a single sport specialization. Imaging, typically this can be diagnosed um, clinically and with plain x-rays. Um, sometimes you can get a comparison view, but basically you see widening of the uh, lateral aspect of the proximal humeral physis. Um, you sometimes can see sclerosis or cystic changes um, as well. Um, MRI would show the same thing, but generally is not necessary. Treatment for this is rest. Um, rest from throwing activities for 6 to 12 weeks until symptoms resolve. Um, physical therapy additionally can um, improve range of motion, strength, um, scapular mechanics, throwing mechanics. Um, and so the main stretches that we really start having patients work on are the sleeper stretch, um, which is demonstrated here, which really works on that internal rotation. And then um, sideline horizontal abduction helps to stretch the posterior capsule. Um, so overall, what happens is the back of the shoulder gets too tight, and that's what shows up as restricted internal uh, rotation, and that's what needs to be addressed. Um, once the symptoms have resolved and we know that their range of motion and strength is good, then we can start an interval return to throwing program, which is a slow restart into throwing. Um, there are some kids that deal with this uh, season in, season out uh, during their teen years. And so if that gets to be the case, sometimes a you know, position, temporary position change is needed. Um, this is a self-limiting problem. So uh, after they're done, they can, after they're done growing, they can get back to throw, um, pitching. Um, but for some people, it really makes sense to sort of save their arm till later. Prevention is the big thing. So youth sports now um, occur year-round. There's this push for early sports specialization. So you become a professional baseball player at age 9 or 10. Um, most of these kids are playing on multiple teams concurrently. So these are the questions that we need to ask. Um, there is easy access to pitching guidelines, and I'll show you where to get those. Um, encourage families to take control of their pitch count. So if their child is playing on multiple teams and no one's tracking how many throws are being, uh, or how many pitches are happening, um, then, then you're going to run into problems. Um, emphasize the importance of good mechanics, warm up, cool down, stretches, strengthening, and taking a break. Um, obviously, uh, my normal talk that we give um, is, is, you know, we always encourage people to take breaks. We're actually in this weird opposite situation right now um, with coronavirus <laughs> and the COVID crisis where um, kids have taken a long break. And then, you know, as things start up, we start to see um, some of these overuse uh, injuries pop up relatively quickly. So, um, you know, this slow reintroduction into sports. We know we have baseball season coming up. Um, people should be trying to get outside, starting to do some some light throwing, increasing what they're doing, and a nice gradual increase is, is the goal. Um, there is the Smart Pitch Program, which is a joint program between Major League Baseball and USA Baseball. It's online. You can Google it. Um, there are age-based recommendations for pitch counts, pitch types, and rest days. Um, and uh, programs can get certified to, make to, to attest that they are following these guidelines. Um, but again, I encourage um, parents, really, to um, and players to step up and um, take control.
And finally, last topic um, is atraumatic multidirectional instability. Um, so this is symptomatic subluxation or dislocation of the shoulder joint in more than one direction. Um, we see this a lot in our generally female um, teenage uh, patients. A lot of patients can have some generalized hypermobility, so it can, there can be a true diagnosis of, of Ehlers-Danlos or Marfan's, um, but again, most people have sort of this underlying hyperlaxity um, that may not get a real diagnosis. Um, and then we see this more in repetitive microtrauma. So patients who are constantly pushing their shoulder into the extremes of their range of motion. So swimmers, gymnasts, wrestlers um, can start to just sort of stretch out the tissues over time. Um, and that can cause this instability. So females in general, again, have an increased prevalence of generalized joint laxity, um, certainly increased prevalence of multidirectional instability. Females in general have smaller glenoids or that footprint or that, that seat that that shoulder gets to sit on um, can be, is often uh, smaller in females. Um, so history, a lot of these patients will present with um, symptomatic subluxations, feeling of their shoulder popping out of place, or it generally isn't a true dislocation, um, but they can feel it sort of pop in and out. On um, exam, I would encourage you to do sort of a range of motion exam and then have them move through some um, some slow motions. So a lot of times, again, forward flexion to abduction can be very telling. Um, most patients have some slight posterior instability and then they'll get this clunk as soon as they bring their arm out into abduction. Um, some of these patients will have anterior or posterior apprehension. Um, sometimes you can have them do what I call their party trick. So they can, um, again, in some patients this isn't painful, um, but it's notable. And so you can have them um, move their shoulder and feel this visible or palpable clunk. Um, you can see a sulca sign. Um, sometimes you can have instability with load shift testing, which is basically pushing um, axial loading onto the shoulder and trying to shift it around. Um, again, posterior jerk test and Baton testing are all important to, um, or Baton score, uh, to see kind of what you're dealing with. Imaging, um, oftentimes we'll get uh, radiographs and then um, MRI. I usually warn people we look um, for things on an MRI, but most of the time these MRIs come back normal. So um, again, here's a sulcus sign. Um, and then the MRIs um, in general, the protective thing about having loose ligaments is that you don't tend not to cause damage. So they tend not to have um, glenoid bone loss or, um, or labral tears. Um, that can be frustrating for the patient when the MRI comes back normal, but it doesn't mean that this isn't happening. Um, and so there are treatment options. Traditionally, um, the answer is physical therapy, physical therapy, physical therapy. Um, so you can get patients into a comprehensive rehab program, um, particularly focused on looking at the way their scapula is moving and their shoulder position, um, which can improve their stability. We work on core and rotator cuff strengthening. How long? Do you do that for? Um, depends what book you read. I think um, we are starting to have a lower tolerance for um, letting people. This was sort of the classic thing, um, you know, where there was this atraumatic instability and all you did was therapy for it. Um, luckily, I think for a lot of these patients, um, there are surgical options. Um, and in some patients, this truly is a, a quality of life issue where their shoulder constantly pops in and out. Um, so you can do a uh, arthroscopic capsular plication, which is basically less invasive, pulls the tissue in. Um, we, I talk about it like taking fabric up. So you pull from the bottom um, and, and anchor that tissue down. Um, it's more minimally invasive. Um, there's certainly a higher risk of recurrence, especially if you have significant underlying laxity. Um, and so the sort of bigger procedure, the more aggressive one um, for this is an open inferior capsular shift, um, which basically you, uh, is an open procedure. You cut the capsule, you fold it over each other uh, itself and tie it down. Um, this is my go-to procedure for especially patients with um, significant hyperlaxity or Ehlers-Danlos. Um, you know, the, the limitation is that you know um, you can actually really tighten their shoulder. Um, most of the time when we're doing this, they're more than happy to have a tight shoulder that maybe doesn't get its absolute full range of motion. So you trade stability um, for motion. Um, so it's, it's a careful choice um, depending on, on who the patient is, where they're at um, in their lives and sports. Um, but for some of the, the really um, involved or Lewis patients who are just 
struggling to hold it together, um, this is a really great option. I've even augmented with um, like a dermal graft to put over just so you have someone else's collagen um, since there's this thing great. And uh, thank you so much for having me here. Thank you. I Steve. Thank you very much. That was a very thorough presentation. I always loved orthopedics uh, because you, you can fix it. <laughs> you break it, you fix it, and then it works okay. most of the time, right? <laughs> kind of like infectious disease to a certain degree. But uh, we have time for questions. The first question, and, and Mark, you can weigh in at, at any time also as well. Uh, the first question is, for acute shoulder injuries, should the pediatrician order imaging, x-ray, MRI, or arthrogram, or should we defer imaging to, to you, trauma surgeon? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so I think if there is an acute injury and we're worried about fracture, um, then you know, obviously maybe the patient presents to the primary care office. I think that's an appropriate setting to get it. Um, if we are talking about sort of a shoulder dislocation that's been reduced, what next? Um, I would say in those cases, generally, uh, I would probably just refer to us. Um, a lot of times with shoulders, we do want to get arthrograms if we're looking for instability. Um, and so getting a standard MRI um, sort of may not help the situation or may cause us to then have to repeat the um, imaging. So uh, in general, I would say, you know, and we, we often get a special set of x-rays to, again, really assess for any um, signs of glenoid fracture. And, and most of those x-rays, um, you know, our, our techs are are trained to do, but if you just order at an outside facility, they may not feel so comfortable doing, especially if, if there was just recent injury. So um, again, I think if, if we're thinking fracture or something like that, then some standard x-rays are fine. Um, when it comes to uh, higher level imaging, then I would say probably just send them to us and we'll get them set up. So um, Allison, we have a, you know, an outstanding center for motion analysis. Um, so when, uh, tell us how you would work with them in, in a shoulder injury. What are the instances where that, that work, you know, the combination of multidisciplinary team would be helpful with them? Um, so I think the, the biggest thing that comes into play with the, the CMS is really looking at our throwing athletes and looking at their pitching mechanics. Um, so historically, um, elite sports medicine has done a lot of work uh, with CMS on, um, uh, you know, looking at some of these mechanical issues with throwing and um, how we can maximize our mechanics. Um, and so doing things like throwing analysis um, certainly is possible. Uh, right now, we're still kind of uh, trying to get things back up and running, obviously, um, with the, the COVID crisis. Things have changed a lot. Sports have changed. Everything's changed. Um, and so uh, that is an application that ultimately we will get back up uh, and running uh, to look at throwing analysis. So if you have a patient, you know, who's been struggling with some shoulder pain and we've done some physical therapy or they've taken time off and as soon as, like every season, as soon as they get back to throwing, they start having pain again. Um, those are the kids that uh, would warrant an evaluation um, and potentially uh, looking at some more advanced things like motion analysis or throwing analysis. Another question, uh, this is a comment more from Dr. Blumer, is if, the young if, if in the young child, I tell parents that both fragments are on the same extremity, it will heal fine. I, I think you were talking about the I, think the, I guess the clavicle would be the best example of that. Uh, from one of our neonatologists, uh, what is the long-term data uh, uh, decades after shoulder dislocation in terms of developing arthritis and ultimately shoulder replacement surgery? Um, so for shoulder dislocation in the teen athlete, um, I think that the we know that... Um, you know, the, the more times the shoulder dislocates and the more unstable it becomes, the more damage there is in the, the joint. So certainly um, the long-term consequences uh, of shoulder instability can be arthritis and um, leading to uh, joint replacement type surgeries. Um, I don't have exact numbers on what that is. Again, if it's anything like our shoulder dislocation recurrence data, it's all over the place. Um, and so, you know, those studies can be Again, you can quote them a 60% recurrence rate. You can quote a 90% recurrence rate. Um, it's difficult. They're, the numbers are all over the place. But we do know that um, 
probably the the sooner you can address someone with uh, you know a, a known labral injury or a dislocation who again falls in that high risk category, which most of our patients do. Um, there are certainly times when there are patients where it makes sense to manage them non-operatively. Um, you know, if it was sort of a, a freak fall and they're not an athlete and you know, maybe it's their non-dominant shoulder, it's very reasonable to manage um, non-surgically with physical therapy. Um, they, they probably fall out of that, that high-risk category. But if you have, you know, a football player or, um, you know, soccer player, things like that, um, then the, the risk is high um, that they will continue to cause damage. And then again, the further this goes on, the more aggressive our surgery becomes. Um, and then they become non-anatomic. They become sort of there's not good bailouts after if that fails, then what? Um, and so I think the movement has been to um, address these sooner rather than later. Uh, we have one last uh, question for a quick response uh, from Doug McGilpin. If, uh, if a shoulder has dislocated on the field, uh, is relocation or, uh, reasonable to attempt? <laughs> yeah, so most athletic trainers um, are trained to uh, get that shoulder back in. Um, the, the faster it can be reduced, um, the more the less discomfort for the uh, for the athlete. So um, on field shoulder reductions um, are certainly uh, indicated. Um, obviously, if it can't be done, then the emergency room is usually the next best place. Um, but it, I would absolutely advocate for that. Great, thank you. So um, with with that, I'm going to ask Mark to close the session, and uh, and then we'll see you again on Friday, Mark. No. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for joining. And Allison, thank you for a very enlightening and kind of thorough discussion on kind of adolescent shoulder injuries. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, we will kind of move on ahead with uh, our daily work. And uh, you know, I just want to thank everyone for participating in today's uh, kind of lecture.